The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Lord Brown, the executive chairman of Letter One Energy, an investment firm focused on the oil and gas industry. He is also the former group chief executive of BP, one of the world's biggest private energy companies. John has just published a book, Connect, How Companies Succeed by Engaging Radically with Society, along with two McKinsey executives. Their central argument is that companies can actually profit from what they call radical connection with all of their many constituents in ways that ultimately benefit their owners and and even allow them to outperform their competitors. He cites the situation at Volkswagen, which lost a third of its value after its emissions cheating scandal, as an almost uncannily precise vindication of the argument. His view is that corporate and social responsibility as a sort of box-ticking construct is sort of dead. Companies can no longer just fill up a page in their annual reports with half-hearted nonsense about sustainability or social inclusion, but need to make it part of their corporate purpose. I have to say I kind of agree. Much as I can't stand Silicon Valley billionaires going on about changing the world by making better video games, people who feel they have a purpose every day in the office will be more productive and better at their job. It's just a fact. Naturally, none of this happens without making employees feel included, according to John, particularly those who identify as LGBT. John was one of the first leaders of a global company to come out of the closet and literally wrote a book on the subject called The Glass Closet. We discussed this a bit in our conversation as well. Of course, I couldn't let this famed oil man in the door without getting his thoughts on the energy industry. In a nutshell, he expects a lot more M&A as hedges come off and low prices continue shaking out the industry. He's happy to have a lot of dry powder of his own to put to work at letter one. And his guess about where prices go, well, it's about as good as mine. And no surprise, like many business leaders in the UK, John wants Britain to remain in the European Union. Anyway, give a listen to my conversation with Lord Brown. Let's talk a little bit about what you mean in the book by radical connection. I mean, how does that, how do you define that and how does it really relate to business? I'd put it in a simple statement to say you have to incorporate everybody you touch into your strategy. You can't add them on later and say, you know, let's go and market a product and then say, well, actually, I've upset the community, I've upset regulators, I've upset my team. Uh, You have to include all these factors in. And you have to include them, not on your terms. You can't just boss people around. Mm -hmm. You actually have to listen to what they have to say and go with it on their terms. And in the oil and gas business, I can tell you, if you don't do that, you will be closed down. Well, let's let's use that. Let's sort of illustrate that with Mm -hmm. BP, for instance. How would BP have connected to all of those constituencies or not? And how would that have played out? I mean, I know in the book you talk about the Macondo so, uh, I mean, I give you uh, lots of examples, of course, but one of the things I did when I was CEO in, in 97 was to connect with the NGOs on the question of climate change by simply saying, we have a problem, we need to discuss a solution, rather than say we don't have a problem and you people have got it wrong. Of course, 1997, actually, climate change wasn't quite the issue it exactly. is today. So that's, but it, well, yeah. you know, we were cooler, as it were. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so... Uh, it's engaging like that, but it's also the level of deep understanding and engagement can go wrong so easily unless you've thought about it in advance and you've prepared for a challenge. So 
Uh, Macondo clearly it was a big challenge and the connection didn't work. Mm. You know, while the technology, what BP did was extraordinary uh, to solve the problem technologically, wasn't tremendous uh, in the way its first encounter, put it like that, with the communities and the regulators. So, so there, yeah, so you weren't the, in charge there, no. you would, but how could they have connected better? What communities in particular were they not, or what constituencies were left out? Well, of course, you have to prepare for, you know, you prepare for crises, regrettably, in, in business the whole time. I mean, nobody is perfect, right. uh, and I can't think of any company that hasn't really had any material company hasn't had a crisis. So you have to invest in it. So this is why you have strategies that make you invest in communities. You actually speak to regulators. You are joined with them without obviously trying to suborn them in any way, but you have a dialogue with them. You're, they're not people you push away. You actually keep them inside. So it's not so about you, capturing them with co no, com this is contributions. Not, it's this about is not TEPCO right. and Fukushima, right, you right. know, with regulatory capture. This right. is something very different. It's actually about making it possible for you to do your business in a sensible way. I mean, in my book, I go back and talk about some amazing historical examples, you know, with the FDA mm -hmm. and uh, Heinz, you know. Heinz was, was unique. He made tomato ketchup with tomatoes. This was an unusual thing in the days. His competitors <laughs> used all kinds of other stuff. Right. And he said, we ought to go and have, you know, clean, pure food. And he got the regulators on his side to say that's our purpose, and of course thereby created you know, a big gap between him and the people who were then driven out of business. Right. So right. there are plenty of examples like that, and it seems one of the things the book really questions is do we ever learn anything from history? Or like Hegel says, you know, the thing, one thing that history teaches us is we don't learn from history. Right. You know, and so <laughs> the historical precedents are legion in this area. And one of the points of the book is that uh, companies can profit by doing this. Or, Absolutely. first of all, they, they can safeguard profits and they can do better. I mean, maybe elaborate a so, little bit so about that. So, uh, we uh, I had uh, two of my collaborators here were from McKinsey. Right. So, we had the great possibility of using very large, ultra large data Huge data sets, yeah. Big data, lots of analysis. And we've discovered a few things. First, on average, 30% of the value of a company is at risk when they break the bond with society. They empty the reservoir of goodwill. They are seen to have been doing something that is not in the interest of society. So look at Volkswagen. When, right. I mean, this scandal broke two weeks after the book came out, and we said 30% at risk. And actually, when the scandal broke, Volkswagen's stock went down 30%. 30%. Now, that's fortuitous, because <laughs> there's a big range. But right. it makes the point. Right. So that's one. What's at risk? So that should be enough to galvanize every CEO to say, I think I need to make sure I can get this done properly. I have to get my purpose embedded in the company. I have to understand how I'm operating, and I have to professionalize this. It's got to be part of my strategy. So corporate social responsibility isn't just that thing you box tick for your no. annual report. My close friend, Howard Davis, who now runs uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, mm -hmm. the, CEO, the chairman, uh, his quote was, I think, summed it all. He what said, John, say? in my experience, corporate social responsibility is something boards discuss at 4.30 on a Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm. It's used to satisfy. It is not used to create. It was a great idea in the past, but now I'd say it's dead. It's got to come back into the center. I think if you do this well as well, the other thing is all the studies show you can pick up your returns. 
by about 2% a year. So it's a 2% uh, outperformance for something which you, you actually find around. You don't have to invent something. You have to, you have to lead and manage well. And again, you can see that. And there are plenty of examples. Uh, one I like to pick is something like salesforce.com. Sure. was one of the many companies studied uh, which clearly showed that they were making these abnormal returns because of what they were doing with their engagement with society. Right. Uh, so, but this isn't always come naturally to leaders. I mean, what are the sort of tenets of connected leadership that you guys talk about in your book? So, so of course, well, I'm, I'm avoiding giving a precise recipe because sure. when they, you know, you give a precise recipe, if it doesn't cook a good cake, people say recipe's no good. <laughs> but actually, right. it's because the situation changes. I think uh, we pick four things that leaders need to do. Number one, they really have to figure out where they are at every moment in time with society. They may not be changing, but society sure is. So they need to listen to the signals. Secondly, mm -hmm. they have to keep reinforcing their purpose. This has been said by most management texts uh, since the beginning of management studies. Sure. But it's so true, it really, just because someone said it before, doesn't mean you don't have to say it again. Mm -hmm. And it's at the heart of it. And the key point we make is that every action with every stakeholder you've got has to line up with your purpose. And the moment they don't line up, you know something's going to happen. Something is going to be bad, so you can tell. Thirdly... And your purpose not being just to make money. No, no. Just to be clear. I think that's outcome. Yeah. The purpose is to make, uh, you know, the finest uh, Apple Pie, the finest iPhone, you know, the greatest, right. uh, the most beautifully designed laptop. You know, you name it. It's, it's those things. And I think the third is really to actually professionalize the management of all these indirect stakeholders really manage them, put targets, make surveys, do things that actual business managers would want to see as opposed to a staff function would want to see. Right. That's really, and then, that's really, and then finally, take a, a we, rec, we call this radical engagement, it's actually to take a risk to really put yourself uh, on the same playing field as your constituent stakeholders. Don't try and be condescending, don't say we know what's good for you, nobody believes authority anyway anymore, <laughs> but uh, just just have a proper dialogue and do it radically. And we talk about, you know, examples in BP where in these very terrible situations, vex situations, I had someone like Senator George Mitchell report on what BP was doing to all stakeholders without referring his report to BP. It didn't go down very well with the internal management, right, right. but it began to give an independent voice because nobody really believes business people talking about themselves. That's true, that's true. Let's talk about social inclusion yeah. a bit. I mean, you've been very vocal on issues related to LGBT in boardrooms mm -hmm. and in companies. I mean, how does that fit into this? Well, it is scenario? the, it, of course, there's the stakeholder called uh, the, the team, right. uh, the employees. I think when you step back and look at the themes in both The Glass Closet, which I wrote, and in, sure. and, and in Connect, they, they do resolve down to inclusion, which is, many people will then say, well, that's an HR thing, it's not. It is a leadership point, which is this. To get maximum engagement with somebody, you have to include them. Then, if you say, well, come and have a conversation with me, but I actually won't actually, I'll send my deputy, or I'll send my deputy deputy, because you're not that important, I think you've probably Unincluded them. You've and that doesn't mean just saying, hey, come on the weekend golf outing. No, no. Because 
that doesn't uh, work either. I mean, you, you and actually, about that. they may yeah. not like golf. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> so this is about actually understanding how to include people, get rid of the barriers. And I think one of the big litmus tests with the team inside is to do this on the basis of sexuality. Because one of the things about LGBT uh, activity is this. Until people are prepared to come out, well, they won't come out unless they feel included. Because mm -hmm. if they feel excluded, why would they come out and make life worse for them? So you, you, you have a, a chicken and egg problem. I think with, with gender, women are very obviously present. You must include them. But they are there. You know who they are. And then you work with them. Mm. You have to have a high degree of inclusion before you can work out who to work with when it comes to LGBT. Right. Uh, and it's really important because, again, this improves productivity. It takes away distraction. It makes a big difference, again, to returns. Well, the, you can hire the best talented people and regardless of the their best people. sexual orientation. Or, yeah. I mean, and a lot of young uh, recruits are, are very sensitive to this, even yeah. if they're straight. They simply say, actually, if, we, if this company doesn't get LGBT inclusion right, how would they get gender right? How would right. they get race right? How would they get, you know, how will they know their nationality right? Yeah. They, they won't, and it's a big litmus test. That's why I think it's very important. I'm, I think we have a lot more to do, but we have a glass half full as opposed to half empty. Right. And, you know, since the book's been published, the, the best thing that ever happened is we have a great role model in that Tim Cook came out as the CEO of Apple. Sure. Now, that only one CEO, which is... But it's a half a trillion dollar company, so it's half a I guess it's... But on the other <laughs> hand, there are 500 right. companies in the in the S&P 500, and statistically it seems improbable that only one CEO Absolutely. is gay. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Tim picked the moment to come out. Yeah. Let's turn to oil markets. And I mean, L1 has uh, invested some of its money, but it also has a fair amount of dry powder. Correct. How, do you, how are you going to deploy that? What, what's what's going to enter into your decisions on that? Well, I think if you look at uh, what's happened now, um, everyone knows the price of oil has collapsed and, uh, and activities come down. But one uh, activity which has come down is the M&A market. It's actually mm -hmm. been very, very slow and quiet indeed. I but think, not for long. Well, I think, exactly. I think people's expectations have to change. You know, having had a decade of prices which average $90 in real terms, you know, having had then two decades previously where it averaged $30, uh, people have to get used to a Expectations change. are still set at the 90 plus rather uh, than the 30. Probably somewhere, you know, yeah. the needle is pointing somewhere between the two. I don't know where, but you know, because everyone has never really discloses what sure. they actually think, right? And some of the signals are probably clearly misleading, right? Right. So uh, I think although debt markets are pretty clear about what so they the think. debt markets are changing, uh, I think people should expect more companies to potentially dance with bankruptcy. They, they may be resolved before mm -hmm. they actually do that, mm -hmm. but uh, as the hedges come off, you know, a lot of production was hedged. Uh, so they'll, that'll roll off now, most of it probably by the end of the first quarter, if not beginning of the second. Banks have to redetermine how much money the loan-to-value ratio uh, is, you know, the value's coming down, sure. so the loan will come down. So, so that will put uh, companies in a, in a bit and of a And do you muddle. think we're, I mean, so there'll be companies, let's say, in the shale space so, or whatever. So that there will be. I mean, a lot of the companies prob may have activities that should never have been undertaken. Mm -hmm. You know, never, ever. 
So, we so they, really, got to they just disappear. The activities disappear. Some bits will be there, and some companies will be remain very strong. Now, probably they can sail through this. Obviously, the very big companies, the Exxon's like Exxon, and the BPs. clearly sail through it. But even some smaller companies that have very tight, focused strategies on prime assets will probably be able to finance their way through this as long as it doesn't last for more than, let's say, five years. Right, And, right. and nobody knows how long We'll, we'll turn to that in a sec, but so, so do you see the big so guys I, buying the smaller? Or do you, and, 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 mix. And, I, yeah. I think we're, we're sort of very keen to, we've already bought, uh, you know, we, we bought $4 billion worth of assets. We sold, uh, you know, three quarters of a billion were worth, roughly. Right. So uh, we've been mixing up our, what, what, I, what I got when I took over this company sure. uh, and making it very strong, making it work at these prices. And we'll continue to do that and we'll continue to add. We'd like to add assets in places like North America. What you know? kinds of assets are you looking well, for? Well, in the, in the unconventional area, because I do think that they're some of the greatest oil fields in the world, you know, truly in the world, and they probably have lasting characteristics for the next couple of decades. These are shale related? Shales, yes. In, in oils or gas or both? Both, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, depending on whether it's oil or gas, depends on the cost base. Right. If the cost base is low enough, gas is a great thing to be in. Right. I mean, what, when you look at the oil price, I mean, that's, there's a, so many factors involved in that, um, whether it's Saudi Arabia's continuing production, um, you know, the failure to get a proper accord between Saudis and Russia, Venezuela, on, of course, on the brink, screaming. I mean, how do you see all of this shaping up in the next? So it's it's really why I keep um, reminding myself that uh, forecasting is a fool's game, <laughs> right. and uh, you know, Baruch said that about the stock market. Every time that someone asked him to make a forecast, he said, "I confidently predict it will vary," uh, <laughs> and uh, I confidently <laughs> predict the oil price right. will vary. I think it varies really when you look at history, and history may be no guide. Uh, it, it varies from low to high, quite literally, and not many points in between. Mm. So sort of average 30 for about 17 years, 35, let's say, for 17 years. It averaged 90 for a decade. Uh, and it sort of, it is a commodity after all. Sure, sure. But the precise path is so complicated because this is v huge demand, huge supply. So the difference between two big numbers is very uncertain. Right. I mean, I guess the question and I want... And geopolitics, of course, well, is well, let's a say, huge I mean, overlay. At, at $30, or in the 30s, I mean, how long can a producer like Saudi Arabia continue to go on before it starts to find it's got problems in terms? So I think Saudi Arabia is one of the strongest, of course, yeah. but a place like Nigeria or Venezuela, you know, they will clearly have... I mean, they're so dependent. Russia's being price. saved by, of course, very weak uh, ruble which means that the cost, the input costs are very low, mm. uh, and they've come, and the come from a very big way. The, or relatively yes. high. So I think, um, so this will create stresses, there is no doubt, and we need to just remind ourselves of the stresses, you know, and then the market is particularly sensitive to every story about China and whether demand, demand really is what we think it is and what growth is. Uh, I think it's one of many factors, but it seems occasionally just to drive things by itself. I think uh, geopolitics, you know, how long will Saudi Arabia pursue what, at least to most observers, looks like a market share policy based on huge reserves, so they don't need to store Seemingly them up. Seemingly limitless. Seemingly limitless. They don't need to store them up for the future. I suppose that's another question, by the way, is do we have too much oil? Is there too much carbon out there based on the idea that we are, if you think about 
climate change, there are movements, of course, to reduce the consumption. It's of very possible. Yeah. You know, there's certainly, if you start with the, the heaviest carbon content fuel, which is coal, mm. uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of coal left in the ground. Yeah. Um, oil, let's see. Uh, maybe some of the very expensive oil, like new oil sands or uh, these sorts of very, very deep offshore right. drilling cost a lot to may never take place, yeah. you know, unless the price of oil flips up to a very high level. But again, I think when people have forgotten, I think, with the last decade of high prices, what it was like to have almost two decades of very low prices. Right. Uh, and so everyone said, Christmas has arrived, we must invest. And, and over that decade, I, I really do think people said, you know, we must find barrels at all costs. We must find the oil at all costs. And you can never do that because mm. in the, it, this is, in the end, a commodity industry. It is very driven by the lowest cost wins. The lowest cost, the last person to shut down production is the winner. Right. And uh, okay. you know, as Ali Naimi, uh, the oil minister from sure. Saudi said at Sarawik, he, he wanted to make the point. He said, I will effectively said, I cannot let high-cost production shut in low-cost production. Yeah. It defies the common sense of the market. Yeah. He's yeah. right. One last question. Brexit. Yes. Where do you stand on the issue of the UK referendum on staying in the European Union? So I'm uh, firmly uh, in the staying in camp because I still have heard no explanation of what we would do if we left and how long it would take to restore the position of the UK as a financial center, as a trader, as an exporter. Um, these treaties and these arrangements are, do not happen overnight. Mm. Uh, and we'd have to take our place in the line waiting for these things to, do, to be done. It seems uh, it's a very emotional, pop, it know, is, populist argument it is. rather than it, It's all tied up economic. with things which probably are not wholly relevant, uh, at least at the scale being projected to the UK, such as immigration. But immigration is a topic every politician has to face at the moment. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Appreciate you coming in. I got to say, I love being able to talk to people who can converse intelligently on so many diverse topics. While management manuals may not be your cup of tea, I find them personally only moderately interesting. It's rare to find a successful business leader like John who's willing to discuss matters like LGBT so openly. And then to be able to go on to discuss oil, mergers and acquisitions, Saudi Arabia's problems, Brexit, it's a delight. In any event, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with another Exchange podcast soon. If you like what you hear in the meantime, subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, and wherever you can find us. Thank you, and adios. Adios.